I've had strategic amnesia about where this encounter occurred, but the candid and poignant conversation with the model and gender advisor in the airport lounge will always stick in my mind. I know he's not reading my reports, she said to me, draining a glass of wine in nearly one gulp. The he was a higher up in an international organization that she was working for. You may be right, I said, but how do you know? How do you know for sure? Because I have a key performance indicator, she said, displaying linguistic adroitness with all the lingo and buzzwords of this industry. It's a pretty good one, too. What's your monitoring and evaluation framework, I inquired, trying to match her phrase for phrase. Because I put a on the second page of most of the documents I write, and he never pulls me up about it, she replied. I even put one in the forward to one of those ministerial addresses I had to write a few months back when we launched the gender strategy. No one noticed. Welcome to State Craftiness, the podcast that examines what happens in the months and years after diplomatic announcements are made. Gender advisors are ubiquitous tools, and gender programs are ubiquitous features of Australian and American statecraft. No development, infrastructure, or defense program is complete without them. This is a very acronym-heavy area of work. In defense Argo, they are known as GNADs, in development as GEDC, and it's a growth market. Look at the job sites for contracting companies working on facets of statecraft, and they always seem to be hiring gender advisors. But what influence do gender advisors have, whether on the individuals they are working with or at a strategic level in terms of bilateral influence? Or are the outcomes so depressing as to drive us to drink? I'm Anna Joubert. Um, I've been working in international development for around 20 years, predominantly in the Pacific, um, but a little bit of work in Southeast Asia as well. I've never met Anna, but I admire her tremendously. She's a former AusAid worker, now making a living in the edgy and precarious world of development consulting, a world where few people feel comfortable enough going on the record to articulate what is in their minds and their hearts. In Anna's blogs and commentaries, she seems to embody all that is honourable about people working in this sector. She writes with passion about how to make development projects work effectively, and she's not afraid to have a swing. She's often tagged as a gender expert, and I wanted to ask her to help disentangle for me the meaning of job adverts, asking for what is known as a GEDC advisor. The G for gender, the D for disability, and the SI for social inclusion. Now, English is my first language. I've been sort of trying to kind of speak it and read it for, you know, God, like close to 50 years now. But every time I kind of read these LinkedIn 
adverts suggesting that you apply for certain jobs. And sometimes when I read the ones that have a gender component, I really, really, really struggle to know what they mean or what they're up to. So if I can read you out something that I got sent on uh, on LinkedIn or something I should apply for a couple of weeks ago, then maybe you can help me kind of disentangle what it means. And I'm going to do an expletive deleted for what is the organization that applies a gender equality, disability and social inclusion approach and recognizes the need for a locally led approach, which reflects and responds to opportunities to address inequalities as they arise within the context. It envisages that JEDC-TA in the form of a dedicated inclusion JEDC advisor. And it goes on and on and on. Like this sort of, it's this sort of Noah's Ark of acronyms and phrases. And I mean, can you just help us disentangle what they mean? Like what is JEDC, does anyone actually use it in the real world or is it only used in the kind of air-conditioned world of LinkedIn adverts? Well, I think that's the nub of the problem. There's a total contradiction when we talk about locally-led approaches in development and then go on to say a whole lot of things that you and I, as tertiary-educated native speakers of English, struggle to understand. If you're struggling to make sense of what the English acronym JEDC means, um, how on earth will that make sense to a local change maker in a village in Fiji or Vanuatu? And this is why I have such a pet hate for language such as Jezzy or Deadsy, because they suddenly appear as official, jargonistic English language acronyms, which people in development partner countries have to play catch up with. Um, I think it's really emblematic of what's wrong with so much of the development industry. It's another example of this rarefied atmosphere where external actors sit around talking to themselves in language that only they understand, that has very little connection to and communication with the real drivers of change in really complex, foreign, non-English first language political economies. We can't even communicate in a way that's comprehensible and culturally resonant. I mean, you and I can kind of debate about the kind of absurdities of this until the cows come home, but at a strategic level, are these phrases and, and concepts useful in terms of prosecuting broader statecraft objectives? The evidence does show, and I'm talking particularly from a Pacific perspective, that there really has been pretty limited return on donor-driven investments um, in terms of women's political leadership, for example, where substantial investments have been made by a range of multilateral and bilateral donors, there's still the lowest representation of women in parliaments in the world. Anything that smacks of foreign interference is rarely going to make an impact on influencing deep-seated cultural social norms. People can say, yeah, sure, come and set up your project here. But so often these projects just operate in isolated, disconnected bubbles. Or even worse, I've actually seen harm being done by well-meaning foreign advisors at international projects coming in, you know, and saying we've got this great new Dead Sea project. But that's actually ended up reinforcing negative misconceptions around gender equality. That is, that it's a foreign, non-culturally compatible concept instead of influencing and dismantling these blockers in perceptions and beliefs around women's equal place and agency. But there are patches of success, and I've been lucky to have worked with some of them, but categorically the reason these initiatives have been successful is because they've been truly locally conceived, locally articulated, locally led, and not designed or imposed by a well-meaning advisor or consultant like myself sitting in Canberra or Washington spouting incomprehensible acronyms and coming up with strategies for what's going to transform gender equality relations in sovereign foreign countries. Anna offered to introduce me to her colleagues in Fiji and Vanuatu, working in some of those purple patches. When Anna and I spoke initially, 
Vanuatu was on the cusp of having elections. The number of women in the 52-seat chamber went from zero to one. And I also had that conversation with Hugh White, who you heard from the first episode. I'd ask Hugh the question that I ask all our guests, what is statecraft? And his answer was this. I guess the connotation of the word is that it involves a whole lot of indirect as well as direct action. So when we think of the sort of quintessential heroes of statecraft, the Mazarans and the Richelieu's and the Kissingers, one of the things that strikes you is that they're using a whole lot of different instruments of policy and often they're achieving their effects indirectly. That is, they try and, you know, put pressure on Russia over the situation in Poland by doing something with Austria. That idea of using indirect or roundabout action to achieve objectives struck me as the perfect way to sum up some of the work that Anna and her colleagues in the Purple Patch were using to achieve their objectives. They weren't using battering ram techniques like manuals or strategies to achieve their objectives. They were using all those supple skills that Hugh White was talking about, focusing ostensibly on one issue, but using their adroitness to progress another. I'll let Nivanuatu woman Jennifer Kalpokas Doan, executive director of an Australian-funded program called Balance of Power, explain why a direct approach doesn't work. The language barrier is already an issue because we don't have gender in our local vocabulary. I think there are ways to refer to the roles of men and women, but the term gender doesn't resonate with any, you know. And in the past, as I'm sure you're well aware, every time people talk about gender, everybody thinks, oh, it's a woman's thing. Whereas the definition of gender, how I've learned it and how I've trained in it is that it isn't women, it's everybody and it's inclusive, it's people living with disabilities. And I start to think, okay, so now you're adding something else. And then Jesse, so G-E-S is what? Social inclusion. Okay, social inclusion, what does that mean? And then they added the D, why are we putting disability with social inclusion, with gender, because we have to fit them neatly into a box to make it make sense to who? And then Jennifer started to speak like one of Hugh's heroes of indirect action and talked about how she didn't really have a problem with the phrase per se, because it was a useful vehicle to achieve wider objectives. It suddenly made the rather technocratic name of the program, Balance of Power, feel very relevant indeed. I think there's a purpose for it. And that purpose is, first of all, we as Pacific Islanders who are doing development have to act like a conduit. So I feel like it covers me. So there's an accountability question around, I need to understand that log frame me because I'm the one that's going to go out and implement it. But I need to understand it. I need to be accountable to the people who are funding it. Those people then have to be accountable to the people who are putting their money into the government coffers for the government to then turn around, not spend it in their own countries, but then go and spend it in these developing countries where maybe a taxpayer might not be able to draw the line between why am I paying for something that's happening in Vanuatu when I'm never going to go there or benefit from it and I've got my own problems here. So there's this accountability question around government has to be able to account to its taxpayers why they've spent their money that way. I have to be able to make the justification to government to continue giving me that money. So I have to understand it. But the people I'm helping, they don't need to know all of that. They just want the help. But I have to know it because I'm that conduit. When I regurgitate it and give it to the communities that I'm working with, 
they don't have to know JETC or whether something that I'm doing ticks the box of social inclusion, disability, blah, 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 blah. So as a Pacific Islander, I feel like I know that. I know the long frame, I know JETC, I know all of that. And that fits a purpose and that's to report back so that that back reporting can report back to the people who are giving us the money for it. Front ways into the communities, into the countries we're working in, they don't need to know all of that. Yeah, as Jenna's saying, I think there's a need to realise that development as a development industry, small d, is not always and sometimes very often not the same as big D development, i.e. social change and how that happens in the communities and churches and power dynamics of where the real decisions are made. I think that's the difference sort of the thinking around. It's part of building up a nation, not just doing a, a little project a little to project, take yeah. the boxes and then at the end of the day we're like, okay, that's good. But for for us, taking the lead in, in this, it's about developing our nation. That's Fremden Yanambath, Executive Director of the Vanuatu Skills Partnership. There's these things that we would be doing anyway. The beauty of it is, oh, great, and I get paid to do yes. it. But if I wasn't getting paid to do it, I'd be doing it anyway. Whereas, you know, if it was an expatriate team leader, they're here on a contract, mm. they're here to deliver against objectives and outcomes, and then they go. Their vested interest is not necessarily, you know, like, my, this is my people yes. I'm talking about. I'm trying to build my people. There were more agendas at play here than in the average multilateral summit. And I wanted to check in with Jen and Fremden and their colleague Mariani about one of the obvious tensions that there appeared to be, about influencing social change, getting paid by donors, and those donors being primarily interested in currying influence with the government of the day, a government that may not be super interested in gender issues. So yeah, you guys in Vanuatu and Fiji have a sense about what your respective nations and communities want and need. But yet the people who are giving the money to do this want to keep in with the government. And often there's a real tension that there is there, because the most important thing when it comes to one state looking for influence with another is, does the minister show up at the, the announcement or at the launch? Or like, does the minister return my phone calls? Like, do I see the typing sign on WhatsApp whenever the minister gets the blue ticks? So it'd be great to get your sense about this tension in your work between this wider social change and process that you're involved in and the fact that there's another agenda at play here, which is trying to keep in with whoever is, you know, the prime minister of the day. Mariani might have some good advantage. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, th- um, th- not, 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 to put, not to put you on the, on the spot there. <laughs> like a good and adroit practitioner of statecraft that she is, Mariani decided not to take that. When it comes to progressing objectives, sometimes saying less is better. I tried again. I know that neither of you are representatives of the Vanuatu or the, the Fiji government. But what do governments make of gender programs? Like, do they regard them as a blemish on the skin or is it something that they need to engage with? Or is it something that that they need to be like, oh, you know, the donor is doing this, but I actually want the donor to do something else. And so I'm going to have to go along with it. I mean, how much agency or interest do they have in these sorts of programs? And, And how much influence do these programs actually buy within the Vanuatu government? I remember one time, Gordon, when I was working for AusAid and still very, very colonised in my thinking, somebody very high in government met me once and called me an Oreo cookie, which is extremely 
racist on one level, but what he meant was your skin looks like mine, but you're an Australian. Because I was working in an AusAid program, trying to further Australia's development objectives in Vanuatu, and according to him, pretending to also care about Vanuatu as a new Vanuatu. Scarcely a ringing endorsement of how much the government in Port Vila was brimming with enthusiasm when it came to gender issues. For Fiji, I mean, there are mixed feelings, Gordon, to be frank. There are those that, I guess, we brought together a couple of people here a couple of months back and talked about women in leadership. We really have to make it sexy so that people can engage in the conversation. There's one gentleman that said, as soon as I see this particular activist on TV, I switch off the TV. Or as soon as I hear her voice on the radio, I switch off the radio. And he's coming from a well-established journalist. So to me, that seeing another gender program crop up, it'll be probably interesting or exciting to people that work in the gender space. But for outsiders, not so. And that's a very frank view. I mean, I'm just sharing my experience in my community. We are very, I mean, the men are very careful. If there's anything to do with women's rights or anything like that, they, they put up the barriers. So it doesn't really excite them, which is why, as Remy had said earlier, the packaging is very important. There's so much going on about women's rights, women's empowerment. The men in our communities are asking, what about us? Don't we need to get empowered too? Which is fair, but because when they say gender, everyone just thinks it's women's. We always have to remind them. We've been talking about, quote unquote, Western gender programs, but what about China? I played to the guys an excerpt of the conversation I had with the ANU's China and the Pacific watcher, Graham Smith. For once an academic gives you a straight answer, China has no interest in gender programming. <laughs> Absolutely straight down the line. Why not? Why not? Well, so basically um, the values within China, this is the population itself, are snap frozen from 1995. If you look at the World Values Survey, and they ask a question, do women make good political leaders? The numbers have not budged since 1995. Like it's literally, they're snap frozen there. So unlike Taiwan, which now a majority believes women can be good political leaders, in China, it hasn't moved at all. And they have this thing called core socialist values, which makes no sense. I mean, it's, it's up there with governance as opaque terms. But what it boils down to is this very Confucian attitude towards um, society and the idea that women, now that China is getting into economic trouble, should take a bit of an economic backseat and let the men take the jobs. So this lens has uh, really come into focus and it means in terms of development programming, China is not going to buy into um, gender issues anytime soon. You don't think there's going to be a Mandarin version of a gender equality handbook that will be launched in Fiji or Honiara anytime it, soon? It seems very unlikely. Yeah, I think that China in the Pacific expert that you spoke to pretty much sums it up. I mean, from what we can see, it's not on the agenda at all, really. Like what we can see is they're building wharves, they're building roads. It's just not even on their radar. And it is that. It's like, okay, the hard, long-term kind of 
deeply entrenched as social, all of that stuff, we'll leave that to Australia and New Zealand because they're here for the long haul. We're interested in X. So we're just going to come in and do that. I think, Gordon, and as Janet said, I really don't know what their agenda is, but all of a sudden you have a multi-story building coming up in Suva and we don't know how they got the approval on that. So Yeah, all over the Pacific, building, building, building. like, And that's kind of that, that quick, Getting the building. It's not about is there a long-term sustainability plan around whether this building is actually got, you know, white elephants all over the Pacific because it appeases the politicians at the time to make a decision their way. And they're not shy about it. They're not trying to sugarcoat it and pretend that that's not what they're doing. No, they are like, yes, that's exactly what we're doing. You know, I think they're less concerned about all of that diplomatic relationship stuff that Australia and New Zealand are more concerned about. And the governments of our countries know that. So they know mm. that they can play one game one way and still get that road the other way. I remember one former foreign minister of Australia calling a particular road in Vanuatu the road to nowhere, and that did not earn her any brownie points at all because they built that road to nowhere with Chinese money and then splashed it in the newspapers and said, here's your road to nowhere, Marie Payne. But, you know, like they're playing their diplomatic games as well. I guess for us, we need to remain focused on what is our own agenda. We're trying to build our nation. So in the future, what we want to see is better decision makers, better quality leaders, so that they can differentiate between just all these white elephants and actually what is good for our country. I mean, just last from my side, just on the whole gender, again, for us, we talked about the language, the importance of that, and... Basically, we don't talk about the gender strategy. We talk about the better balance strategy and even using men to actually be at the forefront of trying to promote that, not directly, but through all the activities that we are doing. And then all of a sudden it changes people's perception. Okay, this is a man talking about the family, which is when you have a man standing in front of a community and start talking about this through a training in agriculture or whatever, all of a sudden people realize, okay, this is still something for him. It's something that we uh, we've been doing, yeah. So and then that's that's how change change happens, and then of course people are happy with that, and then they feel that they're part of that. That's the sound of the Fijiana, the Fiji women's sevens rugby team on the way to beating Great Britain to become bronze medalists in the Tokyo Olympics 2021. The story of the Fijiana is an inspiring one of women overcoming family barriers, sexist and transphobic slurs, and a barrel load of toxic masculinity to be able to compete and succeed on the world stage. Yet as Sevu Waka, a Fijian impresario and longtime metaphorical cheerleader for the Fijiana was telling me, getting the team literally on the plane was a challenge, as there were different standards for the men's and women's team. To me, this story laid bare how much everyday resistance and block tackling there can be from what, 
in diplomatic language is styled as Pacific partner countries when it comes to gender. Um, they had some challenges in their preparation earlier on. And that seems to be the, the pattern of little resources and funding around women's sports, women's rugby. In their preparation up to Tokyo, there was very little funds as far as their preparation. Apparently, there was also funds that were allocated to them, but it didn't reach them. So there was something that were done by community groups out of Australia to fundraise for their kits just to prep. Uh, as far as all their training needs, shoes, etc. So that was leading up to that. So there was a GoFundMe fundraiser that was done for that. And then, of course, they went off and played at the uh, Tokyo Olympics, and that was spectacular. Of course, their performance uh, coming out of the game with a bronze medal. Now, soon after that, I was contacted by some of the fans. It was all fan-driven that were wanting us to help them in terms of fundraising for the Fijianis and just to give them a little gift. Um, knowing that they don't get paid very much as well. We put a GoFundMe account up. It was within the same day that it was put on hold. And one of the main things that we wanted to do with this fundraiser was to give the funds directly to the women, given that the funds don't necessarily get to them. So we wanted to obviously ensure that they would actually get something. So that was one of the main goals was to hand them the donations and the money over to the women. We then had resistance from the official body out of Fiji. You know, they put out a press release and they also shut down fundraising efforts that were being done in Fiji. But of course, given that we were in Australia, they could not really um, control that and, and try to shut that down, though they tried with GoFundMe. But we were able to have that back up within 24 hours. And through this, we were able to raise a good amount of money just from the fans and then organize a way to try and get these funds to them. We had lots of different challenges of trying to get the funds through to them. And they eventually um, got their funds directly from the group. In terms of what their earnings are, it was above what they would have earned for that month while playing at the Olympics. So this became um, something that became quite political and the way it highlighted how the women have been treated. And so there was a lot of social media uproar around the way that the women were treated. And there was that backlash back to the official body, the Fiji Rugby Union on that. People started posting up all the ways of what they had captured as far as how the women have been treated in the past how you know the men would be treated quite differently there's a as far as accommodation as far as transport you say that it becomes all political tell us tell us more about that what do you, what do you mean when it becomes political in terms of men's rules and women's rules sure firstly there was funds that were donated or given to help support the women's team in preparation, but they didn't end up receiving that. And that is political challenges that are within Fiji Rugby Union itself. Uh, they're the example that we're having, but um, of course this occurs in a lot of different sports, you know, as well. But yeah, there tends to be this treatment of women as less than. It's been a journey with the fan base because toxic masculinity, you know, if women are then strong and they are able to actually play rugby well, they were always dismissed in a lot of ways. One of the big ones is the homophobia that would occur um, because 
some of the women are uh, not as feminine, perhaps quite masculine because of the type of sport that it is as well and the type of women that play, you know. And so there was this constant mocking and homophobic comments that would occur. And it would have been good if the actual union would push back on that and change the narratives, you know, and speak to that and sort of support the women. But there wasn't much of that going on. It was those of us that supported the women that were standing up for them. The, the politics of this was always that. The resources were always less than the men. There were stories that I've heard of how women would be training and they'd be told to get off the field because the men uh, are coming over to, you know. So it was always the men, the men, the men that was always praised. And the women were just sort of discarded in, in many cases, you know. So on so many levels, I mean, there's so many different stories of, of what had occurred in the past and still continues. And I think the more that we actually stand up to it and say, no, that's not happening, it starts to change the way people then, you know. So and the women, it is just put fire under them and in them. And you can just notice the way their performance has just gone from that to higher points. You know, now they're actually putting resources into it they're getting the sponsorship that they need as well you know slowly it's starting to trickle in it's not there yet to the extent that that would be great but definitely starting to see the shift and that's because of the gender politics that were happening within the union itself so, so tell me this Sebu, did you read any gender manuals or any GEDC manuals before you began this work no no, I've not read any of those manuals and, and so forth that you're talking about. Rugby is a rough game. The late British broadcaster Brian Redhead once called it chess with muscle. And statecraft can be a rough game too. One where there are lots of tackles, swerves and feints served up every day. Talking with Anna, Fremden, Jennifer, Miriani and Sevo struck me as like dealing with managers or coaches at the height of their game. They've played the game themselves, understand how to win, and they've seen big names flop while others succeed by playing a more tactical, nuanced game. And while the work of those operating from the sidelines often goes by unnoticed as sponsors are hogging the limelight, the work they put in day and daily is a crucial an under-acknowledged element of success. In episode five, we'll check back in with Joanne about how we're going in our quest and discover what marks education scholarships get when it comes to statecraft and influence. I'm your host, Gordon Peake. Mark Peter Nataras and Shana Ryan at Cultural Pulse produce the podcast. Joanne Wallace at University of Adelaide is the executive producer. Luther Canute is the sound engineer and producer. This activity was supported by the Australian government through a grant by the Australian Department of Defence to the University of Adelaide. The views expressed are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Australian government, the Australian Department of Defence or the University of Adelaide.